You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Canvas, where he's painting a picture for us to teach us who he is and a lot of times who we are. And so we're following Israel along this journey into the promised land. And in their journey, they've experienced enemies, haven't they? We've met Jericho. We've met Ai. We've met Gibeon. And that teaches us about some of our enemies, about the world, the flesh, the devil. We've seen, seen Israel fail to seek God. And that teaches us something about our own tendency towards our own self-reliance and our own sin. But, you know, we've also seen an abundance of grace along this journey, haven't we? Every step of the way, we've seen God be patient. We've seen opportunity after opportunity to repent. And that teaches us a lot about the goodness and the graciousness of God. You know, then there's some things we've learned about God, we've seen along the way that, frankly, they make us squirm a little bit, don't they? Things like judgment, things like wrath. And so, gang, I think if we're honest as we walk through this book, this history, this living history, it's, it's revealed some things about God. Well, they don't seem very nice, frankly. And this happens, you know, if you, if you read through your Bible, if you read your Bible long enough, eventually you're, you're going to come face to face with a depiction of God that doesn't match the picture of God you have in your mind. You know, all, and this is not just us. All people, all times, they, they have a tendency to have an incomplete view of God. That doesn't mean what you, the way you picture God is necessarily wrong. It's just incomplete. And so in, in our culture, we tend to have just naturally a view of God that one commentator I read this week calls uh, the God smelling of hand soap. I thought that was very good. The God smelling of hand soap. You know, he's clean. He's nice. He's tame. He'll never get too mad. He won't rock the boat. He won't turn life upside down. And he certainly would never make me too uncomfortable. And that's an incomplete view of God. Because listen, God is gracious. God is peace. I'm sure God loves hand soap. But he's also a just judge. You know, there's a famous part of the famous book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Mr. Beaver, is taking the kids to meet Aslan the lion. And obviously, they are nervous about meeting a lion. And you should be. If anyone ever says, I'm going to go introduce you to a lion, you should be nervous about that. So Susan, this little girl, she asks, well, is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, the problem with our incomplete view of God is that so many times in an effort to make him safe, we make him weak. But a weak God cannot fight for you the way you need him to. One of the things Joshua is teaching us is that we need a God who is strong but is good. We need a God who is loving enough to fight for us and strong enough to win. And so that's our big idea this morning. The big idea is a question. Is your God strong enough to fight for you? Is your God strong enough to fight for you? Let's pick it up. Joshua 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Jeru Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, 
doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. Now, I don't think we have this working, but we got a map. Maybe we'll show it up in a second, but I can describe it to you. Actually, what's going on here, as Israel's moving in to conquer the promised land, God has a, a brilliant military strategy. What they're doing is they're marching right across the center of the promised land. And so if you see the promised land, they cross the Jordan right in the middle, and they go to Jericho, and then to Ai, and then to Gibeon, and it cuts the line straight across. And what are they doing? Well, they're dividing and conquering. They're dividing from the north, the north from the south, so they can't help each other. And Gibeon, we saw last week, it's actually kind of a collection of four cities, and Gibeon is the biggest, the strongest, the most majestic. Once they have that, that's the last great city in central Canaan. And so then we meet this guy, Adonai Zedek, and he's the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is to the south. And from his vantage point, he's saying, "Uh uh-oh, now we're completely cut off. Now we can't call out for help from the north. We're surrounded by desert and sea every other way around us. And so he's worried. Now this king, Adonai Zedek, his name means king of righteousness. This is what we like to call irony. It is irony in the text. So he isn't righteous at all. And he decides to fight against God. And he's going to call on four other kings who are all to the south. And they're going to join together to attack Gibeon all together. So once again we see, and this, this fascinates me again. There are no atheists in the promised land. All these people, all these people that war against God's enemy, they all believe in God. They are convinced the stories are true. Nobody's neutral in the promised land. Everyone, everyone believes enough to do something. Everyone takes some kind of action. Some repent and some rebel. And those who rebel face judgment. Over and over, though, again, remember, we've seen God's patient. Every chapter, there's been an opportunity to repent. But over and over again, people will stare God in the face, and they will shake their fist at him, and they'll say, no, I will not turn to you. I will fight you instead. So we said that the judgment in Joshua, it's not nice, but it is just. God is not tame, men and women. He hates sin. He hates injustice and suffering and evil. And he will be patient. He will offer grace for a time. But eventually the strong and sovereign God will put an end to sin and evil and rebellion. And what he does out of his grace is he puts episodes of judgment like this in here to warn the rest of us, to warn us because we still have time. The offer of grace is still on the table for you and for me. Speaking of grace, do you remember what happened with Gibeon? It's going to pop up again in this chapter. So let's pick it up in verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua in the camp in Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the king of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So from here on out, we're going to learn three things, three things that the text is trying to teach us about who God is, so we'll know that he is strong enough to fight for us. And the first one 
echoes our friend Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, Witch, and the Wardrobe. The first one is this. He is good. He is good. When Gibeon didn't deserve it. You remember when Gibeon used deception to create the covenant with Israel? They lied and they cheated. It was underhanded. It was wrong. But God met their deception with his goodness. And instead of smiting them, he honored the promises his people had made. Instead of putting them on latrine duty for the rest of their lives, he put them in his temple where they could learn about him and they could worship him. You know, the Bible says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I think the Gibeonites, listen, they must have learned something about God's goodness and his kindness because they act very differently in chapter 10 than they did in chapter 9. So what do they do when these enemies come and they're facing them? Listen, the text tells us they have mighty warriors. They could have said, all right, we'll fight them off ourselves, but they don't do that. Oh, they're a rich city. They could have been, and buy off their enemies. They don't do that either. And they don't even use their own wits or try to deceive these five kings like they've done with Israel. They do something totally different. They call out to God. Remember Joshua, it's, the Hebrew name for Jesus. And they, it says they call out to Joshua specifically. And his name means God's salvation. They call out to God's salvation. I think the text is trying to tell us something. It's trying to teach us something about God here. It's this. You can't fight God, but you can call out to him because he's good. The text is giving us two options. You got Adonai Zedek, the so-called king of righteousness. And he thinks he's righteous. He thinks he's good. He thinks he can handle it and he trusts himself. But he will be judged this day. Gibeon, on the other hand, they got a lot that they could trust in, but they don't. They call out to God for salvation and they will be saved this day. You know what? It's easy to miss too. But God is showing his goodness to the Israelites. Now, Think about this. How would you have felt if you were an Israelite and you get this call for help? So, hey, the people that, you know, lied to you and cheated you and tricked you, they need you to come fight a battle for them now against five armies that are gathered there. Anybody real excited about that prospect? I wouldn't be. And you know what? It's a hard journey. So actually, they're going to have to hike 25 miles, and it's gonna, they're going to ascend 4,000 feet in elevation. And so when, he, when they say, when the Gibeonites say, hey, come up to us, they mean literally. They're going to have to hike up a mountain, and this is happening overnight. So get up out of your bed. We're going to hike 25 miles, 4,000 feet in elevation for somebody that lied to you. Listen, I tell you what I'd say. I'd say they got their own warriors. Let them fight. And if I was just compelled like I had to, let me tell you, I'm not in any hurry. Right? I'm going to slow roll this puppy. And maybe by the time we get there, oh, we missed the battle. Oh, well, we had to water our camels. We got lost. We took a left instead of a right. You know, this is me. I, I wonder, and I would even be willing to bet, that some of them saw this as punishment from God. You know, the text says they, they failed to seek the Lord. Oh, you know, we messed up again. And so this is probably God smiting us and punishing us. But that is not what is happening even a little bit. What is happening is in the middle of this mess, God is arranging their victory. He is fast tracking their victory over the southern parts of the promised land. Because by the time this day is over, they will conquer not one, not two, not three, not four, but five cities all in one day. 
So far, they just had to hop one at a time. This thing's going to take forever. God says, nope, we're expediting this thing. In his goodness, he is arranging their victory. Think about this. This wasn't even a battle supposed to be involving them. God uses a battle between Gibeon and five Amorite kings for Israel's good. This is living history. This is living theology of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So my question for you today, my question for all of us today is, is your version of God strong enough to do that? Can he take sin, deception, five enemies, and work it all together for your good? So God is good. And next we find out this good God fights for you. We'll pick it up in verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent to Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent to Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God is trying to paint a picture for you and me this morning that God fights for you. In fact, in a couple verses, in verse 14, it's going to give us a summary, like a summary verse. And it summarizes the events with these simple words, for the Lord fought for Israel. This whole story is about the fact that God fights better than you fight. And so that's why in verse 8, God speaks in the past tense. He keeps doing this over and over. He did it in chapter 1. He did it in chapter 6. He says, I have given you before the Bible or the battle even starts. And it's not because he's crazy. It's because he's God. And he's strong enough. And when he says something's going to happen, it will happen. There's four verbs in verse 10. And in the English, in the English it kind of reads like, God is the subject of the first verb. And so God threw But then Israel is the subject of the next three verbs. That's not how it is in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, all four verbs have God as their subject. Now, for all you non-grammar nerds like me in here, let let, let me tell you what that means. God's the one doing all the action. God does all four of the verbs. He throws, he struck, he chased, and he struck. It's all from God. And then in verse 11, God throws large hailstones from heaven, and the text says, God's stones killed more than man's swords. Now, there's lots of attempts to kind of explain this. You know, maybe some natural phenomenon, maybe some random crazy hailstorm, you know. But isn't it interesting that the stones only killed the enemy? They totally miss Israel. Y'all, this is is a miracle. These are like the original laser-guided bombs, okay? This is what's happening. This is No random natural occurrence. This is God fighting for them. We've said a hundred times, Joshua, he's a preview of the greater Joshua, of Jesus. And this text is showing us how Jesus will fight for us. You know what's going to happen 500 years later? In this very same spot, a young David will come out and he will hurl stones at Goliath. 
You may remember Goliath was hurling insults. He was hurling insults at God's people, and none of the Israelites could defeat him. They were powerless against him. But then David steps up and says, I come with you not with a great army, not with all the latest technology, not with missiles. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me. He's going to fight for us. So David fights for Israel and defeats the enemy. And the Bible is clear. You are not David in this story. Jesus is David. Jesus is the Davidic king who fights for you. But y'all, just, just as Joshua is kind of like a, a precursor to Jesus and a precursor to salvation, it's also a preview of greater judgment. Because we see these hailstones come up again. They come up again in Revelation 16. Revelation 16, 21, when this plague of hailstones comes and falls from heaven, striking God's enemies. And it's this second judgment, this judgment before the second coming of Christ. And again, the text is clear. It is not nice at all. It is just. And it's, it's gruesome. So the picture in Revelation 16, y'all, is these people have gnawed their tongues out in agony in the agony of their sin and their suffering. But even still, they are cursing God. They're shouting their curses at him. And the, picture, the, the text is telling us, listen, the problem isn't our tongues. The problem is our heart. Our heart is in rebellion. And so listen, if you have a view of people that think, you know, people are generally good. Hey, they just need a little pep talk, a little good advice. You don't believe the Bible. The Bible says there is no end to human pride, rebellion, and evil. The people in Revelation 16, just like the people in the promised land, they've seen miracles, they believe in God. There are no atheists. But their further knowledge only increases their rebellion. So just like, just like in the days of Noah, just like in Canaan, just like in the world we see all around us, we are all plagued by what Jeremiah calls our incurable wound. Our own sin that has created this incurable wound in our rebellious hearts. So in this text right here in the same place, we see salvation and we see judgment. And I think the Bible is telling us this. Listen, if your version of God is too nice to throw the stones of judgment, then he is also too weak to win the battle over your greatest enemy. A nice, weak God, he can give you good advice. But who will conquer sin and death for you? Is your version of God strong enough to fight for you where you need it most? You know, you can read the whole Bible. Every, everywhere, every book in the Bible is more interested in me knowing that he is strong than in me being strong myself. We see this over and over and over again. We see it here. Gibeon, with all their warriors, we don't have a record that a single warrior from Gibeon fought. And even Israel, they fight, but it's clear they didn't win the battle themselves. Remember, they showed up exhausted after this all-night hike, and I think that's on purpose. And then it says that far more died by the stone than by the sword. Men and women, your hope isn't in you fighting. It's in God fighting for you. Second Chronicles 69, it says this, it says, for the eyes of the Lord, they run to and fro through the whole earth. So God is searching for something. He's looking for something. What is he looking for? To show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. So he's not searching for people who are strong. 
He is searching for people who will let him show himself strong. Remember the Paul's thorn in his flesh? Please, please, God, take this away. He says, no, I'm not going to take it away. Why? Because I want you to know my strength and your weakness. Listen, I know this morning some of you have been fighting and fighting and fighting, and you're trying so hard to be strong. What would it look like for God to fight for you? What would it look like for you to let him show himself strong? And notice, notice what happens in the text. Notice what happens when God is fighting for you. See, you may think, oh, well, we just turn into spiritual couch potatoes. So when God shows up, he starts hurling stones. He says, I've won the battle. So it's like the Israelites, you know, God gets in the game and the Israelites just go sit on the bench. That's not what happens. Actually, the opposite happens. Israel's knowledge that God's, God fights for them, it doesn't make them passive. In fact, it spurs them into action. They fight harder knowing that God is fighting for them. Listen, the reason, the only reason they march all night and fight all day is because they know that God is fighting for them. And this is how it always works. Anytime you see a Christian who, with great endurance, with patience, with persistence, with grit, it's always because they know God is fighting for them. When you fight in your life, when you, when you fight for your family, for your well-being, for your kids, when you, when you fight sin, the only reason you can fight is because you know God is fighting for you. It's because you know more of my enemies will fall by the stone than by my sword. So God is good, men and women. He fights for us. And next we find out that God hears. Verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has not been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. This, these verses contain the last and the greatest miracle in the book of Joshua. It says the sun and the moon stand still until you end up with a what most likely was a really long day. And this miracle, it's caused as much scoffing as any miracle in the Bible. People say, it's impossible. It's, that's ridiculous. It must be metaphorical. You know, what it's really saying is God gave them extra strength. So they were able to do in a half a day what would normally take them a whole day, something like that. <clears throat> well, the text points out we have some evidence for this miracle. So it cites the book of Jashar. Now, that book is lost to history. No one's read it. I haven't read it. But, but his point is, to the original audience, you've all read about this. You don't have to take my word for it. Other people told you about it. And the same is true in some ways for us. So many ancient civilizations from all corners of the world have records of an unusually long day. We have Chinese records from the Incas of Peru, the Aztecs of Mexico, Persian, Egyptian records. But you know what? The real, the real question isn't how much evidence is there. The real question is, how big is your God? That's the question. Because listen, if God can't do this miracle, he can't do any miracle. 
If he isn't strong enough to do this, he isn't strong enough to fight for you. And on the other hand, if you believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, anything else is possible. If God can create all this out of nothing by the words out of his mouth, he's strong enough to do anything. You know, my kids like the book Charlotte's Web, and many of you know the story of Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's a spider, and in her spider web, she writes the word some pig because she don't, doesn't want her friend, Wilbur, who's a pig, she don't want to get him to turn into bacon, and that's about to happen. And so she writes this word some pig, and the whole town's light. It's a miracle. No one's ever seen this. And so the mom on the farm, Mrs. Arable, she, she goes to talk to the doctor about this. She, she's probably the smartest guy I know. I'll go see what he thinks. And she asks this doctor, Dr. Dory, and she asks, do you understand how the spider was able to write these words? And Dr. Dorian's reply is, great, and it is wise. He says, no. But for that matter, I don't understand how a spider learned to spin a web in the first place. When the words appear, everyone said it was, they were a miracle, but nobody pointed out that the web itself is a miracle. So listen, if you scoff at something like the sun standing still in the sky, has it ever crossed your mind that the existence of the sun itself is a miracle? In fact, we are surrounded every day by miracles we can't explain. That should show us how big and strong God is. But we ignore them simply because they're common, because we see them every day. You know what we're like? We're like people who look at God with binoculars turned backwards. You ever done that? Everything seems small and distant. And so that's us. The sun goes up and down every day. We didn't put it there. We can't explain it. We can't explain how it happens. And yet we think God is too small to fight for us and win our battles. And so sometimes these special, special miracles occur. And that's, this is the point of it in the text. God does these special miracles. And it's like God saying, hey, let me turn those binoculars around for you real quick. You see how big I am? Do you see how strong I am? Do you see who I am? I'm strong enough to win any battle. C.S. Lewis said, The mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion. You know what mere religion is? Mere religion is what we turn to when we think our God isn't strong enough to fight for us. Mere religion is Adonai Zedek. I think I'm the king of my own righteousness. I fight for myself. And then verse 14, it swoops in and tells us what this is all really about. It's about a God who isn't safe, but is good. The greatest miracle in this passage, y'all, the greatest, most unbelievable, jaw-on-the-floor wow moment has nothing to do with the sun or the moon. The greatest miracle, the text points out, is that God hears. God heeds the voice of a man, is what it says. It's Joshua. It's Joshua who commanded the sun and the moon to stop. And so it says God heeded the voice of Joshua. That word heeded, it means listened. It means complied. You mean to tell me this big, strong creator God who put the sun in the sky listened and complied to the voice of a man? That's a miracle. You know, that this is one of those places the text is pointing us straight to Jesus. Romans 8, 38, 4 says that Jesus 
is at the right hand of God right now. And you know what he's doing? He's interceding for us. 1 John 2, 1 says that Jesus is our advocate for the, with the Father. Hebrews 7, 25 says that Jesus always, always lives to intercede for us. The Bible is telling us that Jesus is always talking to the Father about you. And the Father heeds his words. So, you know, many people, myself included, we spend a lot of energy and effort trying to get God to listen to us, don't we? To get in his good graces, to bribe him with good behavior, maybe even beg him. But your hope isn't that God listens to you. Listen, because you go to church or because you read your Bible or you have a list of sins you don't commit, God heeds the words of his son. And your hope is to be in Christ. And Jesus is always talking to the Father about you. So you don't have to worry about if God hears you. God hears his son. And Jesus is talking to the Father on your behalf. You know, why do we do this? Why, why do we look through those binoculars backwards? Why, why do we have this small view of God sometimes? I think it's sometimes it's because we underestimate our battles. You know, if I just need some good advice or help in a relationship or break a few habits or know how to vote the right way, listen, lots of people can help us with that. But who is strong enough to create a relationship between you and God? That's what we need. You know, there, there have been a few times now that Jesus has appeared in the text on both sides. On the side of grace and on the side of judgment. And this is one of those times. And listen, if it wasn't so obvious, I almost wouldn't believe it. You know, a lot of times I'm real skeptical of people who kind of overdo these connections in the Bible. And you get into all this outlandish allegory and numerology and you know so you'll hear things like well there was 12 disciples until until judas the evil one and then you're down to 11 in genesis 11 that's the tower of babel and i don't know if you know this but kfc puts 11 herbs and spices in their chicken just saying i think god makes such a clear connection here for skeptics like me so after the battle, the Israelites, they find this Adonai Zedek and all these other kings are hiding in a cave. So these supposedly mighty, righteous kings are hiding and cowering while their people fight. Then we read this in verse 26. It says, And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. They hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Now, is this brutal? Yes. Is this judgment? Yes. Is this God fighting for you? Absolutely. But maybe not in the way you think. So we have this Adonai Zedek. He's the false king of righteousness. He's the king of Jerusalem. He was hung on a tree, put in a cave with a stone rolled in front. And it says, this stone remains to this day. Well, who is Jesus? He's the king. He is the true righteous king. He is the king of Jerusalem. Yet even though he was righteous, he hung on a tree. He was put on, in a cave with a stone rolled in front. Why? Not for his sins, but for yours and for mine. See, Jesus fought for you by dying for you. Even though he is the true Joshua, he became Adonai Zedek 
for you. And because of that, Romans 8, 1 says, there is now, so now, you know how much condemnation there is for you now? None. I had a German professor. I took German in college. I don't know why. I wish I hadn't. She always threatened us with, eine grossa dicke null. That means a big, fat zero. That's how much condemnation is left over for you if you're in Christ because he took it all. But there's one difference. There's one difference between Jesus and this Adonai Zedek. The text says Adonai Zedek lays in his tomb to this very day. But men and women, Jesus is not in his tomb anymore. His stone was rolled away and he is alive to this very day, interceding for you and for me. So understand, when we say God is strong enough to fight for you, we don't mean to make you rich or to save your country or to make you comfortable. No, no, no. We mean God is good enough to die for you, and he's strong enough to conquer death. So, men and women, is your version of God strong enough to do that? I'm going to ask Adam to come on back up, and we're going to take some time and do our so what. We're going to give you just a couple minutes to take some time, and I want you to do some business with God. Take time to talk to him about your view of who he is. Is it big enough? Have you been looking through those binoculars backwards, or do you believe in a God who is building an eternal kingdom and is strong enough to go through death for you? Listen, you know what? If you have a hard time believing that, you know what you can do? You can tell him. You can say, Lord, I believe, but would you help my unbelief in this moment right now? Or maybe you realize, you know what, you've been fighting your own battles because you don't trust him enough to fight for you. Or maybe you'll realize today you've been fighting all the wrong battles and you want to hop on board with him. Whatever it is, take some time right now and ask, is your God big enough to fight for you? Take a moment and then I'll come back up and we'll pray.
Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If Lord, you have questions you or comments, for- we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.